0: Well, welcome, Summit Church, at our uh, campus locations in Durham and Chapel Hill and Raleigh, and to our brothers in Christ who are right now watching by video at Wake Correctional. Um, we greet all of you. Uh, welcome to the Summit Church. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to take it out and open it to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We're in the midst of a several week series uh, on the book of Acts called Sent. Um, if you study the church in Acts, what you see is that the early church was. Uh, Not a place that you went to. It was not a building. It was not an institution. It was a movement, a movement of people around a message. If I had to choose one word that would describe uh, the church in the book of Acts, it's the word sent, which is the word, um, uh, is the title of our series, because every single person was sent with the, 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 the news of this message. Um, and so that's what we've been looking at is what does this look like? Uh, what does it look like for you? What's it look like for you to believe the message if you've never really believed it? Um, we got an absolutely fabulous passage today, one of my, um, one of my favorites, uh, Acts chapter 17. When I was in college, um, I was a part of this thing called North Carolina Student Legislature. I was, went to a North Carolina college, and um, a couple times a year, uh, you would send uh, each college in North Carolina, I would send a delegation, and we would come down here to the Capitol in North Carolina, and um, we would like pre- we, present bills and argue like we were Congress, and you know pass laws. Um, what we did had absolutely no bearing at all on any law ever. Um, but it was fun. You know, it was kind of like you know uh, dress up for college students. And so, in one of these um, sessions, uh, I was in my fast asleep in my hotel room, two thirty at night, and one of my uh, roommates, who I, who I I had led to Christ about three weeks prior to this. Um, at 2.30 in the morning, comes busting in my room, yelling at the top of his lungs. He's out of breath. JD, grab your Bible quick and come on. And I honestly, you know, I'm trying to wake up. I'm groggy. He's just yelling at me beside my bed. Grab your Bible quick. Come on. I honestly thought somebody was dying and needed to get saved. Like they were choking on a piece of meat and they had a few seconds and I was going to share the gospel with them and then they were going to die. So I jump out of bed. I got nothing but gym shorts on. And I'm like, I got to get dressed. He's like, there ain't time for you to get dressed. So I got, you know, I literally am running out the door. I grab my Bible. I grab the first thing I can get my hands on, which happened to be a jacket, you know, because it was in the winter. So I'm running down the hall, you know, Jim Shore trying to put this jacket on. He takes a hard right, busts into this college room, this, um, this uh, other hotel room. There's like 35 college students seated all over this room in two beds. He's out of breath. I'm out of breath. And he says, here he is. And he points at me and I'm like, here who is. And he said, uh, he said, they all had questions about the Bible. And I told them you were an expert in the Bible and that you can answer their questions. And so I'm sitting there, gym shorts, (laughs) winter coat on (laughs) with no shirt. And, uh, and and so for about 20 minutes, I just shared the gospel with them. And then for about an hour to about four in the morning, they just asked questions. And uh, it was a, it was a great night. um, I, I often think about that situation when I read this passage in Acts chapter 17, because Paul is going to find himself in a very similar situation. I think he was a little bit better dressed than I was. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. Um, Maybe it wasn't that dramatic. Again, I hope that you were better dressed, but did you know what to say in that moment? If you found yourself in a situation where there are people who have little to no knowledge at all of the Christian message and are very different than you, how do you conduct yourself in a time like that? What do you say? If you are a believer here this weekend, what I think you're going to see in the next few minutes is you're going to see some insights and some patterns for really what you should say and how you should talk to people. Um, who are very outside of what you believe and and think very differently than you. Um, If you're not a believer, what I hope happens today is that you see in what Paul says to this group of people, um, you see some of your own questions addressed. Um, You see some questions that are going to be posed back to you, and I hope that you hear the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul and then through me um, to address kind of where you are um, in your search for God. So Acts chapter 17, um, we're going to begin around verse 16. I'm just going to work our way through this passage and I'll read a few verses and stop and make some points and then we'll just work our way all the way down to verse 34 that way. Um, verse 16, now while Paul, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, this is not Athens, Georgia, this is Athens, Greece, um, even after Rome's ascendancy, uh, Athens remained the intellectual capital of the world. I uh, Think Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, Duke, all kind of rolled into one. That was Athens. It was one of the art and athletic cultural centers of the world. You had the largest, one of the largest stadiums, athletic stadiums there. And of course, you recognize that it was the birthplace of the Olympics. Uh, and so there was a lot of stuff happening there. While he was there, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. There was an ancient saying in Athens that it, is, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was a human. Um, I've had a chance to pass through Athens a couple of times, uh, and it's true. Everywhere you look in the ancient city of Athens, you're going to see temple ruins, huge temples to um, Zeus and Athena and Apollyon. So Paul has seen all this, and he is provoked by it. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, which seems to be where he always started his evangelism, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. The marketplace was not just a place they shopped. Paul's not hanging out at the, you know, checkout aisle at Target, you know, asking awkward questions. Um, This was like a cultural center for them. Uh, It's where they discuss new ideas. Um, And so he is there engaging them because he's been provoked by their idolatry, which leads me to number one. If you're a Christian, write this down, for the Christian, grieve over idolatry and do something about it. We see in Paul a pattern for how we're supposed to relate to our city, You see, when people encounter temples as large as the ones you would find in Athens, they tended to do one of two things. Either A, be so enamored by these structures and these temples that they just wanted to be a part of them and wanted to be accepted by them and they wanted a a piece of the action. Or they were so offended by and repulsed by them that they would run away from the city. Paul did neither of those things. He is — the idolatry that he saw in Athens broke his heart, but he didn't run away from it in fear and hatred. He didn't draw close to it with a desire to be accepted by them. He ran straight against them, toward them, wanting to, to engage their idolatry and show them the message of the true God. Here is my question for you. When you see idolatrous structures in our society, what is your reaction? Tim Keller says, you can look at whatever buildings in your city are the biggest, and that will usually give you an indication of what the city's idols are. So if that's true in Raleigh-Durham, we've got a couple, you know, a few big buildings that are dedicated, I think, to finance. Then we've got some really big sports arenas. That's probably an indication of where the idolatry in our city lies. When you see those things, what is the, the dominant reaction that takes place in your heart? It's okay to be impressed with those things, but does it grieve you that more glory is given to those things, more energy is poured out on those things than is given to the Almighty and the glorious God? When you watch things like the Oscars or the Grammys, what emotion fills your heart? Is it admiration? Is it awe? Is it a sense of repulsion? Or is it compassion and heartbreak? You see, if you're not provoked by the idolatry — if you're not provoked by the sensuality, then that means you are, here's an old word, worldly. It means you're just very at home in the world and its idols or whether you acknowledge it or not, are kind of the idols of your heart. What they want is what you want. But if you're one of the ones who sees all those things and just gets angry and says, you know, to hell with the world, then you don't really get the gospel. Summit Church, in Paul, we see a picture of what we need to be. People who are deeply aware of our culture able to dialogue with it, but untainted by it, which means that we got to get to know our culture. We got to pay attention to it. The only way Paul was upset by the idolatry of the culture is he'd spent time getting to know it. Many of us are all peeved and ticked off about where our culture is headed, but we're not actually listening to what people are saying. Here's the irony. We send people to overseas to be missionaries. And one of the first things they do is they spend several months just learning the culture. To be able to understand it, understand what its questions are, dialogue with it. The irony is that many of those people get to know that culture better than you and I will get to know our own. Now, I'm not advocating that you sit around and watch filthy movies and call that cultural research, but that you be engaged, you stay engaged in the culture for the purpose of reaching people because you're going to see that Paul's presentation of the gospel is built on how much he has listened to them and understood the questions that they're asking. And you do that because that's what Jesus did with you. Jesus did not see your idolatry. He was provoked by it, but he did not run away from it. He did not desire to be accepted by us. He ran straight to us. He confronted us and he showed us the futility of our idolatry and that there was um, a gap between what we were doing and what God wanted for us. Um, So that's number one. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now you're like, well, who were those guys? Epicureans were basically hedonists. You know what a hedonist is? somebody who just seeks pleasure, Um, they believed that that the gods were not concerned at all about this world. So, you know, live it up. The Stoics were the complete opposite of the Epicureans. They were pantheists who believed that God was in everything. So they were all about getting in touch with the divine within. Um, And the way that they thought that you did that was by avoiding the passions and cares of the world. Their ideal state, they believed to be spiritual, uh, their ideal state was imperturbability. You're like, what does that mean? Imperturbability, unable to be perturbed, Uh, which means they were not, you know, moved by pain. Uh, They were not seduced by pleasure. Think Spock, that he would have been a good Stoic, okay, because that's his ideal. Um, You say, well, uh, that's really interesting, but that's irrelevant to me because I'm neither an Epicurean nor a Stoic. Um, Here is why I point that out. Um, Epicureanism and Stoicism had grown up in the wake of an argument that took place between Plato and his brilliant student, Aristotle neither Epicureanism or Stoicism, neither of them were really well thought out, carefully articulated philosophies. They were what we call pragmatic, which means that they were just functional. It just worked for people. Some people preferred to live it up. Some people preferred more the reflective life. What you find in history, listen to this, anytime that there are some really smart people that are both regarded well by the culture that disagree with each other, What happens to everybody else is you develop this kind of philosophical despair. You're like, well, it's impossible to really figure things out because both these guys are really smart and they disagree. So it must be whatever works for you. So it's just going to, I'm going to choose one that works for me and you choose one that works for you. In our culture, that's what we deal with because you got guys like Stephen Hawking on one side who seems to be a really intelligent scientist saying, you know, God's not necessary at all to explain the universe. And then you got other cultural icons like Billy Graham, who's saying God is absolutely necessary to explain things and he's necessary for your life. And a lot of us look at that and you say, well, both these guys are well regarded and respected. It must be that we just can't figure it out. So whatever works. Those are the kinds of people that Paul is talking to. They are people who have developed a functional philosophy of life, but it's not really well thought out. And that's where Paul's about to get engaged here. Verse 19, I guess, or verse 18 still. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, babbler is a very derogatory term. It literally means a bird who picks up seeds and spits them out without digesting them. Think like a, you know, like a chicken, all right? That's my best chicken illustration, by the way. Um, You people ever seen a chicken? Um, So what he's doing is he's saying that Paul is like a guy who takes an idea from somebody else, doesn't understand it or digest it, and just spits it out because he's heard it. In other words, Paul is a second-class mind. I will tell you guys that it used to really bother me that everywhere I went, um, when people found out that I was a committed Christian, it was just automatically assumed that I was a second-class mind. I'm a committed Christian, therefore I'm the knuckle-dragging Neanderthal who's never really read a book, who wants to marry his sister. And that used to really bother me until I realized that it's, just, it's always been that way. And I especially some of you college students, You might be the smartest person on your campus. You might be more well-read than anybody on your campus, but you just need to understand that this is what they thought about Jesus. It's what they said about Paul. It is a satanic lie, and you just better get used to it, and you better not resent it. You better embrace it. You're going to show like Paul's about to show, I'm actually not as dumb as you think I am, but just because they say that doesn't mean you are that, right? And so that's what you're going to see. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, so they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is translated Mars Hill, saying, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting? Because you see, verse 21, Luke says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except for telling or hearing something new. Uh, Historians say that these philosophers were always on the lookout for another god that they could add to their Parthenon. Parthenon was a big building where they kept the statues of all the gods that were in the Roman, you know, Greek Empire um, or the Roman Empire and Greek culture. So um, they're always looking for a new one. So they're trying to interview Paul to see if he's got the intellectual chops to include a statue of Jesus in the Parthenon. They're like, hey, we got this section back here, didn't have a statue yet. Maybe Jesus will fit in there. So this is Paul's interview. Y'all think Paul's going to interview well? Oh, verse 22. So Paul. Standing up in the midst of Mars Hill, the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every way very religious. Now, is that a compliment or an insult? That's the beauty of it. You don't know. The word religious in Greek can literally mean spiritual, which would be a compliment, or it can mean superstitious, which would be an insult. They think he means spiritual, so they take it as a compliment. Paul's probably got a twinkle in his eye because he meant the double entendre. Oh, you're very religious. So they're like, oh, yes, we are. Thank you for noticing. Verse 23, for as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. This was their just-in-case God. Just in case the real God didn't get represented in the thousands of other gods, we got, here's to you, unknown God. Um, you know, they, uh, if you've ever been through Athens or seen pictures of it, one of the things around these temples is there were all these images that depicted struggle. And the tour guide that I was with said that these were the Greeks' way of just showing the difficulty of the questions that life is presenting, and they're struggling to figure life out and struggling to come to meaning. Paul looks at the unknown God statue, and he looks at all these images of struggle, and he says, what therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. I can see you're struggling. I can see you want to know a God that you know you don't quite know yet. That's the one that I'm going to proclaim to you. In other words, he started with their questions. That's significantly different than where he starts with the Jews. Acts 17, 2, when he walks into a synagogue, it says he opened the scriptures and reasoned with them. Paul didn't open the Bible on Mars Hill. Why? Because they don't recognize the authority of the Bible. So he knows he's got to reason with them to get them to pay attention to what the Bible says. So he starts not with chapter and verse. He starts with their questions. And the only way he could start with their questions is he knew what they were. Number two, Paul found Paul found points of agreement. Right, here's what he said. I can see you're searching for God. Mankind is incurably religious. You see, God created us to worship and to know him. It's a primary drive. Right? It's like hunger. Um, you can, people say, well, I'm not really religious because I don't go to church. You can no more cease being religious by not going to church than you can cease you know, having a sex drive by choosing to remain single. Now, sin has corrupted that desire, but the remnants of it are still there. The book of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity indelibly in the hearts of mankind, which means that all people ask questions about God. All people search for meaning. All people are looking for kind of ultimate answers to life's questions. Some of the best conversations that I've ever had about God took place with people who had probably never stepped foot in this church. Um, sometimes in fraternities, sometimes in bars, sometimes in places that are just very far from what you would think of as a church culture. You got people who are not religious in the formal sense, but they've got questions about God because God put that in their heart. And that search for God that takes place, listen to me, in every human being should be identified and it should be affirmed because that's the place that you can start. I've told atheists, for example, I admire your passion for truth. I can see that you want to be a moral person who is intellectually honest, and I think that's awesome. I've told non-religious fathers in my neighborhood, I can see you really care about the future of your children. I can see that you're concerned to leave a legacy and to leave something to them that's worth living for. I've told activists um, who are, shall we say, on the liberal side, who hold positions on issues very different than my own. I will will say to them, you know, I'm very very touched by how compassionate you are and how much you want to see the brokenness of the world healed. Why? Because those things are remnants of the image of God and the search for God in them. And I want to say, that's great. That's awesome. I can see in all ways you're very spiritual. Now, what Paul's about to do in the next few verses is he's going to start pointing out little logical problems with their approach to God. Look, Look at verse 24. The God, the real God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't dwell in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he gave to mankind life and breath and everything they need. In other words, does it make sense that the God who created everything would actually need for you to build him a house to live in and then for you to put out food every morning for him to eat? Does that really make sense that God's dependent on your rice and meat that you leave out in the doorstep for him to actually come and snack on? That doesn't make sense. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's the one that determined their allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek Him and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Now, he's doing a couple of things here. The first thing he's doing is he's confronting this idea that that God is like a tribal God, You see, they had like thousands of gods, and each one was over a different sphere. You had the God of the sea and the God of war, and then you have the God of the Ephesians. He said, no, no, no. The real God is a creator of all of it. He's not God over one particular sphere. The second thing he's doing is he's showing them that life's most important pursuit is to know that God. Greek and Roman gods, you see, were always a means to some other thing. You worshiped and served them because you wanted something they could give you. For example, here give you a little sampling. Now, Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of prosperity, the goddess of money. So if you wanted prosperity and money, then you were devoted to her, you went to her temple and you made offerings. Athena, Athena was the goddess of wisdom. In her temple, there was a statue of Zeus with his head split open and she was coming out of it. So if you wanted to be smart, you wanted to get wisdom, then you would go to the temple of Athena and you would give offerings and she would give you wisdom. Then there was the goddess Nike, or we might say Nike, N-I-K-E. She was the goddess of victory. She was worshipped by athletes and warriors and Michael Jordan, right? because she made you run faster, jump higher, and soar above the competition. Uh, she was in the shoes. Um, then there was the goddess of Aphrodite. Can you know what goddess that was? Aphrodisiac. She was a goddess of sex, good sex, um, beauty, fertility. Um, then one of my personal favorites, uh, the goddess Cloacina. She was the goddess of the sewer system. I kid you not. I've seen a statue of Cloacina. I'm not sure why you would worship her or especially not sure how you would have made an offering to her. And I don't really want to know that either. Um, I w- did find it fascinating that when I was there, the statue of Cloacina that you see uh, has been reassembled a little bit. Um, her nose obviously has been broken off and then reattached. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. Um, if she's the goddess of the sewer system, she probably broke it off herself. Um, all these gods... All the, the thing for you to remember is that all these gods were a means to something else. It, whatever you were looking for, prosperity, money, sex, smoother bowel movements, whatever, whatever was important to you, you worship God to get that thing. The real God, Paul says, is so glorious and transcendent that he is his own reward. And he's not sought as a means to anything else. And Paul kind of looks at them and says, you know that. You know that the real God, the reason you have an altar to the unknown God is you know that there's something out there that is better than power and money, that that's just not working for you. Yet, even though he is so glorious and transcendent, he's actually not far from each one of us. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. Here's a question. What Bible passage is he quoting there? Is it from Isaiah? Maybe Jeremiah? How about Leviticus? Deuteronomy. Nobody knows what's in Deuteronomy, so we just always say we're quoting from there, right? What, is, what, is, what, what's it, what verse is he quoting? He's not quoting a Bible verse. It's got quotes around it because it's a quote from a poem written in 600 B.C. to Zeus. That's where he quoted. Then he goes on. He says this, as even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. That's from a poem called Phenomena written by a Stoic poet. Paul is quoting from things embedded in their popular culture. Being then God's offspring, just like your poets have said, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. I'm going to give you number three and four. We'll do them together. Number three, Paul reasoned with them. Is your approach to life or approach to God, is it working for you? I'm just going to ask you questions to help you be honest with yourself. You see, before Paul presents Jesus as the solution, he wants to show them that their current solutions aren't really working that their current answers aren't working. Francis Schaeffer, who was a very famous Christian philosopher that was, I think, probably really popular in the 1960s and 1970s. He's since gone on to be with, with the Lord. Um, but uh, Francis Schaeffer called this blowing the roof off somebody's house. He means that and, uh, before, somebody doesn't know they need to seek, seek shelter in Jesus until you've blown the roof off the shelter they're currently in. So he said, we gotta, what we got to do first before we show them Jesus is the answer is we got to show them that their current answers aren't really working. He said, you do that just by asking questions the way that Paul did. Uh, for example, I've asked activists who are concerned about global suffering, but are seeking to address global surfer, suffering apart from the gospel. You know, I'll say, you know, it's awesome that you want to give food and education to everybody, but do these things cure the problems of mankind? I mean, look at the places that have lots of food and education. Are they free of problems? Is our country free of problems? Every utopian attempt in history has ended in tyranny. That's what human history is the ash heap of utopian attempts. Doesn't that show you that we need a solution that's greater than just external changes and more prosperity? I've asked people who say, you know, evolution explains everything. We have no need of God. I'm like, well, if you think evolution explains everything, that given enough time and space, that nature will naturally just work itself into higher and higher levels of complexity and ultimately perfection. Where did nature get that quality to begin with? In fact, where did nature itself come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? You know, I heard an interview years ago with, with uh, Carl Sagan, who was the, you know, guy who famously said, the universe is all there is and was and ever will be. And he's talking about basically getting back to the Big Bang, because everything just came from there, and that's where it just all began, and it worked itself from the complexity we have today. And the guy that was interviewing him, not a Christian, but just said, okay, well, where did the Big Bang come from? He said, well, that's where science stops because it just always was, and we just can't go farther back than that. And you're listening to that, and I'm thinking, you can't stop there. You can't tell me, hey, nothing times nobody equals everything. Just accept it. Uh, Where did it come from? Is that really a satisfying answer that, that, yes, it just all just, it always was, always will be. It just came from nothing and just developed into what it is? When I talk to people who say that all roads lead to God, whatever way you choose, God's like a mountain, you know, whatever way you want to get to the top, it's up to you. You've heard me do this. The question I ask them is, how do you know that? The only way that you can tell me all roads lead up the mountain to the same place is if you can see the whole mountain. And that's the very thing you're not allowing me to do is see the whole mountain of God. So you're doing the very thing that you won't let me do, which is how you can tell me that my road is getting to the same place that the Hindus road is getting to. Does that really make sense? Is that fair? When I, talk to, um, when I talk to those who say that all moral values are equal, whatever morality you choose is good for you, I'm like, do you really believe that? Because, you know, I, I lived in a society for two years. It was, you know, a Southeast Asian society that genuinely believed that life works better if you keep women uneducated and keep them home. Are you willing to say that those moral values are equal to ours? Because, you know, they, they'll claim it works for them. Are we prepared to say that those moral values are equal? When I see that somebody has given themselves to an idol, I usually just ask, is it working for you? Because I know it's not. I'm like, do the people that have the God that you're searching for, do they look like happy, satisfied people? Just look, fast forward and look down the. if you get everything you're looking for. You want money? Look at the people who have all the money. Do they look like happy, satisfied people to you? Paris Hilton, she looked like well-balanced, happy person. Donald Trump, billion cannot buy that guy a decent haircut. Okay. (laughs) It cannot buy him the ability to keep his mouth shut. (laughs) It's not buying him things that I feel like I want. Um, What happens if Wall Street crashes again? What happens if the whole financial system goes to pot? What happens if you die? Are are these things going to sustain you after death? And if I can quote their own prophets to show them that, then I'd do that. And you guys hear me do that in here, don't you? I, for example, you probably heard me quote a number of times that, that little line I saw in a Fortune 500 CEO said this in Forbes magazine, where he said, you know, I spent my entire life climbing the ladder of success. I finally got to the top of it, only to find out it was leaning against the wrong building. And I say, your own profits are telling you that this is not worth, um, or I saw an interview last week with Zach Efron. they are like, who's Zach Efron? See, that's part of the problem. You should know that. Um, He was explaining, he was explaining why last year in his mid-20s, he had to check himself into an alcohol rehab facility. Here's his words. I'd done films back to back to back. I was burnt out. There was something lacking, some sort of hole that I couldn't really fill up. I was just so deep into my work. It was really the only thing I had. I mean, you're in your 20s, single, going through life in Hollywood, you know? Most of us are like, no, Zach, we don't know. Because you have everything that we're working so hard to obtain, is your God worth the things you're sacrificing for it? I ask people, I'm like, you know, if your God's money, then you sacrifice your integrity, you sacrifice your family. Is that worth it? If your God is comfort, then when your wife gets on your nerves, you sacrifice her and divorce her so that you can maintain comfort. Then your kids dislike you. I mean, is that really worth it? Is it worth the things you're sacrificing for it? I just ask questions. Because I know that God has placed eternity in every human heart, and the Bible, which is kind of a cheat sheet for me, tells me that only Jesus truly addresses that need. And so I know that if I ask questions long enough, I'm going to expose that. Now, some of you are listening to this right now, and you say, well, yeah, but I just don't know as much as you or Paul, so what should I do? Study is what you should do. If you care about the people around you, then why would you not figure out a way to communicate the gospel to them. It does not make any sense to me that you would actually believe the gospel and then just be lazy in your abilities to communicate it with people. You know, um, I don't know how to do sign language. You want to know why? It's not because it's hard, but it is hard. But the reason I don't know sign language is there's nobody in my immediate family that's hearing impaired. There's nobody that I've ever wanted to communicate with so badly that it forced me to learn sign language. I guarantee you, That if one of my children were hearing impaired, I would know sign language just like that. I would study. Why? Because I want to communicate with them. If you are not learning to be able to express the gospel to people around you in ways that are effective, you either A, don't really believe it's true, or B, you don't care about those people at all. So you need to study. You need to get good at this. You need to learn. The other thing I'll just tell you is like, what? I don't know what to do. Just ask questions. Anybody can ask questions. I just ask questions. I just, I just keep asking questions. I'm that guy. I just keep asking until they say something. I'm like, there it is right there. You just laid it out. And just keep asking questions because that's what Paul is doing. That's how he's exposing what's in their heart. Here's number four. I told you I'd do it together with number three. Paul demonstrated to them God is greater than you've imagined. He demonstrates to them that God is greater than they've imagined. You see, listen to this. One of the chief characteristics of all false religions, listen, is a truncated or shrunk down view of God. So that's what Paul goes after. Your view of God, he says, is too small. God is not someone that you can manipulate to get something else you want, like prosperity or power. The real God, Paul says, is never just a means to an end. The real God would be sought for his own sake. Any God so big that he created the universe, you don't use that God as a means to get something else. He would be the thing worth knowing. He's so glorious that you would use everything in life to know him. You know, when I was in college, I think I've told you this before, I had to take two electives in the arts in order to graduate. That was the way our curriculum was set up. And so I had one of my these electives, I had to choose between classical music or theater. I chose theater because I had this suspicion that maybe we would get to do skits and, like, acting, but that was not. Um, We sat around and learned about French, weird, avant-garde guys who ran around in tights and sang about their heartache, you know, for the entire semester. Um, I, for one semester, devoted myself to learning theater. I made an A. And the reason that I did it is not because I love theater, because I hated the things that I was studying, I mastered theater, that one little, you know, as much as you can get in a semester, so that I could get an A, so that I could graduate and get a good job and make money. So theater for me was a means to make money. Now, fast forward, I'm 41 years old, sometime in my mid-30s, my wife and I went to a theater production in New York City, and lo and behold, out of nowhere, I don't, cannot explain this, I liked it and i thought i'd like to see something like that again so we come back to durham um, we go to a few shows at the dpac we end up buying season tickets i don't have them now but you know we had them for a, a, a brief time there we had season tickets they were ridiculously expensive and i thought oh the irony the irony that i used theater in college as a means to make money and now that i've got money i'm using that money <laughs> to get theater <laughs> what was a means to an end has become the end because it has a beauty that I want to see or be a part of. What he is saying to them is if there really is a God who is powerful enough to create the whole universe, that God you would not seek as a means to a better life now. That God is better than money. He's better than power. He's better than prosperity. He's better than good sex. He's just worth knowing. He's like, your God's way too small. You know, I tell people, um, the real God, and this is, it seems to be what Paul is saying here too, the real God's not somebody you can easily explain. When I talk to people who've got questions about God, I'm like, you know, if we're talking about the infinite God, wouldn't we expect that there are certain things that that God does that are going to be beyond our immediate ability, be beyond our immediate ability to explain? You know, the, um, there's a thing called the problem of evil. It's a reason that a lot of people say they don't believe in God. Um, if there's a good God, how could there be suffering? Our line of argument goes like this. If God is all-loving, he would not want suffering to exist. If God is all-powerful, then he could make suffering cease to exist. Because suffering exists, that means that God is either not all-loving or not all-powerful. And if God is not all-loving or not all-powerful, he's not really God. Therefore, suffering proves there can be no God. Do you follow that? Because there is suffering, it means God's either not all loving or not all powerful because it exists. Therefore, there must be no God. Here is the hole in that that is almost so obvious. If God is infinite in power and he's infinite in love, he's also going to be infinite in wisdom. And if his wisdom is as high above mine as his power is above mine, I mean, think about how much greater a God who created the galaxies, how much greater his power is than yours. God speaks the worlds into existence. I can't figure out how to sync my phone with the Bluetooth thing in my car. And I've got an instruction manual. When I'm thinking about a God who creates the complexity of atoms and a guy who has trouble syncing a Bluetooth device, that's a pretty big gap between his power and mine, right? If the gap between God's wisdom and mine is as great as the gap between his power and mine, then see, it just makes sense to me that there's going to be a few things in life that are just not going to make sense to me. I was reading a philosopher the other day who said that the reason he doesn't believe in God is purposeless evil. He said, if evil had a purpose, I could concede that God may be allowing it to happen. He said, but there is no purpose for a lot of the evil. Therefore, God does not exist. (laughs) Again, here's the problem with that. He's assuming that whatever purpose that God has, his mind can grasp. uh, Another philosopher named Alvin Plantinga answered him this way. He said, well, he said, imagine that you're out in the woods camping and you're in a single person tent, and I come up to you and say, is there a camel in your tent? That's an easy question to answer. There is no camel in my tent, because if there was a camel in my tent, I could see him. He said, if I came up to you and said, however, is there a, he called it a no You ever heard of that? We always called them chickers when I was a kid, these little tiny things that like, you know, that are when you're camping out, they make it miserable for you. They you know, bite you and everything. He said, if I ask you, is there a no in your tent? And you turn around and take a glance and say, Nope, there are no seums in the tent because no, no seums in the tent because I can't see them. He would say, I think you're missing the point of the name no seums is that we call them no seums because you can't see them. Your eyesight's not good enough to see them even though they're there. So that's not a good reason for you to say that there are no no seums just because you can't see them because they're smaller than your eyesight can perceive. If there is a God who is infinite in his wisdom, then maybe some of the things that he does has a purpose that your mind is not readily gonna grasp. I I just don't feel like that's a big jump. You know, they they say that the human mind, the smartest person in here has a 46-ounce mind, right? The biggest the human head gets holds 46 ounces, so the the biggest head in here, 46 ounces. You're like, well, that's pretty big. That's the size of a big gulp at 7-Eleven, all right? (laughs) So you geniuses got a big gulp, all right? Big gulps, eh? You got it, all right? They say that, that at any given point, you're only using about 10% of your mind as you know, different parts fly, about 10% of it's working at any given time. So that's 4.6 ounces. 4.6 ounces is the size that of the courtesy cup, the stingy movie theater gives you because they are too cheap to give you a second cup when you've bought a $9.50 drink. They give you a 4.6-ounce courtesy cup. I'm like, okay, so I'm using a 4.6-ounce courtesy cup to figure out the infinite God it might be that there are some things in his wisdom that may not be easy for me to explain. If there really is a God, he's going to be beyond some of these questions he's saying that the philosophers are asking. I will admit to you that is frustrating to me because I do not like unanswered questions, but I just understand that if God is infinitely wise, then of course, there's going to be things about him and his plan that I can't Always grasp immediately. In fact, I love this statement right here. Look at this. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. The real God is transcendent and glorious. He's going to baffle you sometimes. And Paul says to them, don't you know that? don't you have in your heart this yearning for a God who is infinite in goodness and infinite in power and also infinite in wisdom and your heart knows that he exists and you know you want to know him isn't that the unknown God that you're searching for and then at last Paul goes into the gospel verse 30 the times of ignorance God overlooked which just means that God stayed uninvolved leaving them to their idolatrous error but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance, or the word there is proof. He gave proof to all by raising him from the dead. Write this down. Number five, Paul proclaimed Jesus and then asked this question, who do you say that he is? He says the God that you were looking for came to earth. He revealed God's ways to us. And then he gave us proof of who he was By raising from the dead, so the question now is not, is Christianity a better explanation? The question is, is Christianity a divine revelation? Real truth, he tells these philosophers, is not achieved by idle speculation. Real truth is achieved by divine revelation. I am not asking, has God given me the best explanation? I am asking if this is divine revelation given to me through Holy Spirit illumination. And the question becomes, who do you say that he is? You see, that's the most important question that has ever been asked in human history when Jesus looked at a group of people and says, who do you say that I am? When I don't know what else to do, y'all, I just go straight to Jesus. After I've done my best to ask the questions and sometimes do a good job, sometimes not, I say, would you just consider who Jesus is with me? Would you read the gospel with me? Would you look at this man and tell me, is he a fraud? Is he a phony? Or is he really who he says he is? At the end of the day, I'm not a Christian because I've developed a better explanation for all the questions. I am a Christian because I believe Jesus came through the divine revelation. He told me that He was God in the flesh. He demonstrated His power. He demonstrated His love. He claimed to die for me on a cross and rise again. I believe He is accurate. I believe He is true. I believe He is faithful. I believe He has given to me the picture of God. And so, who do you say that I am? I say that you are Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Religion and philosophy want to ask questions like, who's got a better argument for truth? Who is right? The gospel says, nope, who is Jesus? That's the question. Religion and philosophy say, which one is the best explanation? Christianity, the gospel says, what happened in the death and resurrection? Religion and philosophy ask, what does God want for us? The gospel declares, look at what God has done for us. Religion and philosophy say, What kind of sacrifice do I have to make to gain God's acceptance? The gospel says, Look at the sacrifice God has made for you. You see, when you don't know what else to do, you do what Paul did. You say, Hey, who is he? Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, dropped the mic, said, I'll be here all week. Some men joined him and believed three reactions. Mocked, curious I want to hear again, joined him and believed. You should be getting all three of these reactions in your life. There should be people who mock you. There should be people who are drawn to you curiously that are coming with you and visiting your church with you and maybe reading the Bible with you. And there should be people who are joining you and then believing. By the way, do you see the order of that last one? Not believed him and joined, but joined him and believed. It means that sometimes in this kind of context, People end up joining themselves to you before they join themselves to Jesus. That's a very important point. Because I realize that when it comes to reaching these kinds of people in our society, they're not going to come in, hear one sermon that I preach, and immediately have it all make sense to them and then get saved. It means that they begin a relationship with you where they're like, let me join you. And that's where you have to bring them here or invite them to read the Bible with you. And you got to say, let's just investigate these things, let's read together. Most conversions of these kinds of people don't happen through one awesome sermon. Most of them happen over time. They join themselves to you and then they come to believe. Do you have these reactions in your life? Are people mocking you? Are people curious and are they learning to believe? Then see if you believe the gospel and you're teaching the gospel, you will be. Some of this is our message, this is our mission. This is what it looks like in action. Why don't you bow your heads with me if you would. I think there's kind of two groups of people here today. Maybe there are some of you who see the truth of the gospel for the first time today, it makes sense. You see that you've been searching for an unknown God, that you've got questions that there's not satisfying answers to. And maybe this thing about the resurrection of Jesus, the death of Jesus or something that just, it rings true to you. I'm gonna invite you right now Maybe you're not ready to put faith in Christ. Maybe you still got too many questions. Just say, hey, God, unknown God, if you're up there, I want to know. Maybe you should resolve right now that you're going to talk to that person who invited you. You're going to keep coming back here to this church. You're going to open your Bible. It's been sitting on a shelf for 30 years, and you're going to open it, and you're going to begin to read the Gospel of Matthew. You're going to join yourself and then let God's Holy Spirit begin to work faith in you. There's another group in here that you are a believer, but you're thinking as I'm talking about people that are in this very category. Names have come to mind while I've been speaking and you're going to ask the Holy Spirit right now for help to have the boldness to present the questions and to proclaim Jesus. Guys, can I tell you the reason that I... Ask questions. Can I tell you the reason I sometimes put myself in awkward situations? The reason is because the message is worth it. I'm provoked by the idolatry and I'm moved with compassion. Because Jesus saw me when I was in the midst of idolatry and He didn't leave me alone. He didn't write me off. He didn't run away from me. He ran to me and He confronted my idolatry and He exposed the bankruptcy of my answers and then He died and resurrected my place and I want to be that way to others. I want to run toward them. Our teams of all of our campuses are coming right now and they're gonna begin to pass out the elements of the Lord's table. You just keep your heads bowed if you would. They're gonna come at every campus and they're gonna distribute the bread and the cup. If you're not a believer, listen, this is not for you. This is a covenant celebration that those who have trusted Jesus use to remember their covenant with him to renew that covenant. So you just let those elements pass you by, but what they proclaim to you Is that God is giving you an invitation if you're not a believer and that invitation is to accept Jesus as your savior he died on the cross for you he died to save you we had a girl in the nine o'clock service who's been watching us on podcast for weeks only second time here during this time right here instead of taking communion she trusted Jesus as her savior and she said I don't need the bread and the cup I need what they represent and she trusted Christ as Lord and Savior maybe you need to do that if you're a believer I want you to take the bread and the cup I want you to hold it for a minute because our campus pastor is going to come up in a minute. They're going to lead us to take it. I want you to reflect on how far Jesus went to reach you. And then I want you to ask God to use you to go that far to reach others. And then holding this bread and cup, begin to pray for individuals in your life that you need to hear this message. You spend a few moments reflecting and our campus pastors will come and they'll lead us in the taking of these elements.